podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca is clobberin' time. It's on baseball and how teams started scoring quicker in tests. For that, we got on the author of a new cricket book. Tim Wigmore, I'm the author of Cricketonomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket, and I work for the Daily Telegraph. On this episode, we talk about Sri Lanka's fast scoring in the 90s, the Adam Gilchrist effect, how ODI cricket seems to have changed things, but... T20, not so much, McCullum's batting, why it worked for England, and how line and length in test cricket may not be the future. I was going to get you on probably to talk about this topic anyway, and then England have decided to change how test cricket is played. Just in a very brief explanation, how would you explain the concept of baseball? Are we all in on baseball, by the way? I don't know who invented the phrase baseball, but you know, it feels like that's just become the term. I think it was Andrew Miller in his first piece when McCullum joined as coach. He called it there and then, so fair play to him. But basketball, in a nutshell, it's scoring really, really, really quickly and basically trusting in, in one-day skills to play test cricket in a different way because England have played a lot of very conventional and not very good test cricket in the last few years. And this all leads into your book, Cricketonomics, where you talk about how test rates have risen. So let's go back to the Sri Lankan 98 test. So Sri Lanka at the Oval, 1998. And we remember it as the Murali test, he gets his 16 wickets. And obviously that's part of the story, but uh, it's only half the story. Sri Lanka score incredibly quickly and they managed to get a lead of 140-odd in the first innings while batting fewer overs than England. And if you look at that test, Sri Lanka need 287 overs to get 20 English wickets. So it's basically, it's three days and an hour of bowling and only you know a day and three quarters of batting. Um, and that's because they score so, so quickly. So I think... That is the most anyone has bowled in a test and still won since 1955, which is going back to overrates and stuff being a different complexion. So it's a really radical way way of playing, and and that's with you know Jasria and and De Silva. They actually beat Australia in a similar way the following year in a kind of a, a, low, a very low scoring test at home. But what happens is again Sri Lanka bat for fewer overs than Australia. Um, and end up, end up winning. So Sri Lanka beat Australia by six wickets, and they only bat for 93 overs in the match, and Australia bat for, what, 127. So that's a kind of low-scoring equivalent of the oval. Memory, it's from basically World War One onwards that runs per over are pretty flat. They're, you know, beneath three runs and over, even if you account for eight ball overs and everything. There's a couple of spikes earlier on in cricket, which I think are some faster-scoring test matches, you know, in years where there wasn't a lot. But also, I think some of those tests might have been on matting as well, which is obviously, you know, can can allow for faster scoring. Sometimes you don't have to worry about the pitch falling apart. And there's a very uneven quality of opponents. So if you're playing, yeah. it's, that's Africa early. If a, you're, if a lot of playing them, that probably impacts the overall numbers a lot as well. No, exactly, exactly. So I think all those things are there. Let's go to Sri Lanka, though. You've got a theory in the book why Sri Lanka bat more attacking than other places. Yeah, so there's two things that stand out about Sri Lanka. Firstly, they're the, the first test team to get status through ODI cricket, basically. So one-day cricket is a disproportionately important part of their early development as a kind of cricket culture. 
And then you look at the, the schools themselves. Well, the schools, like in a lot of countries, like in England, the batters tend to come from elite schools in Sri Lanka. Each private school really has big match, which is a really prominent match against a rival school, which is two or three days, but it's normally only two days. And it's two innings side cricket over two days and so the only way you've got any chance of winning is by scoring really really quickly and so that lends itself to a type of players we talked with delete mendez and he plays some really very very fast scoring uh innings in test cricket including at lords in 1984 and he says he, it's actually he's really importing the style of play from big match in, into test cricket so that that definitely seems to play a part in, in sri lanka those those two factors together googlies quarter seamer karen dukes back of the hand red Leg cutters, Tisra, pink, knuckle, white, slider, seed, heavy, bounces, cherry, length, pill, off cutters, old, crimson traveller, kookaburra, hard, outswing, second new, off spin, arm, SG, split finger, shiny, leg spin, soft, new, yorkers, flippers, wrongens, long hops, reverse swing, half volley, and third new. These are just some of the names we use for balls in cricket. Well, Manscaped wants you to be as proud of your balls as you are of the ones delivered by your favourite cricketer. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawn Mower 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer, 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Insert the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. I've actually used this, um, not just something that I'm hawking for fun. And I got to admit, I thought it was a bit silly. And then I went down there and it was exceptional. I honestly feel I could bowl outswing with one nut and inswing with the other. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Manscaped, for the man who cares about his balls as much as the ones out in the middle. And the other thing that you mentioned was the whistle stop tours of teams when they would go by boat in the uh, ye olde days. They would stop in Sri Lanka on the way there because it was in a good position for the boats. And they would usually play one-day games, but they would be multiple innings one-day games. Yeah, so you, you, there was no chance of a result. So like England stops on the way to the, the borderline tour even. They stopped for a day. There's no chance of a result. So it's all about trying to entertain as, as much as possible, which is playing in this buccaneering style. So... Yeah, these sort of three factors together give Sri Lankan kind of cricket quite an unusual dimension in terms of the, the role of, of batters. And that, I think you can actually draw a, a line from that right up until Jarasarir and also the World Cup victory in 1996. Mm. I think even if you go back, I'm trying to remember his name, but there was a Sri Lankan who, who made a lot of runs against the MCC way back when I mean, he might have even played in England a little bit, who was attacking. Like it seems to be that for whatever reason, the way their cricket developed, was a more attacking batting style than other countries had anyway. And then you factor in all these different things. And if you look at it now and you compare them to New Zealand, they were probably held back from test cricket for what, 30 or 40 years longer than they should have been. And so New Zealand sort of just become a test nation and develop, whereas Sri Lanka developed completely outside mainstream cricket. Yeah, and of course, so if you look at New Zealand, well, New Zealand they're being promoted and they're not very good for a long time. So their style is just, it's clinging on. It's stereotypically New Zealand until Brendan McCullough, who will probably come on to later. But it's that very kind of grim play. Whereas Sri Lanka, if you just think they're winning way more of the matches they're playing than New Zealand are in their equivalent stage of development, just because they're not a test team. So again, that also encourages this more, more adventurous play. And, and I suppose the way for them to dominate at a slightly lower level was to play this very adventurous attacking style of of cricket. And then when they actually get to test level, even though they're not 
particularly strong at the start, but they are probably a lot stronger than, say, when New Zealand get test mm. status, which means that that style of batting, it doesn't need to be torn up in a way that with New Zealand, it was very much about how can we survive? How can we... Because New Zealand were often playing four-day matches and their aim was just to basically grind out a draw in a four-day test. Yeah, three-day matches and still trying to work out uh, how to survive. So <laughs> you mentioned Sanaf Jayasuriya, uh, Ramesh Kalu with Arana before. So I was at the MCG when Murali was called and for that whole test match. And I remember watching Kalu with Arana and I was playing representative cricket at the time and I went back and all the kids were talking about the game and I was like, and, and someone said, well, what was the best innings? And I was like, Kalu with Arana. And I think that might have been when Ponting made, I think Ponting might have made 100, David Boone might have made 100 and everyone there was looking at me crazy and I was like, yeah, but they batted normally. You have to go back and watch Kalu with Arana in that innings to be like, this is not normal test batting. And it was obviously on the back of that that they ended up opening the batting in the series in Australia where they played really, really good cricket. That leads on to the World Cup, which kind of changes everything. How they ended up with Sanis Jay Saria is quite interesting though, isn't it? Yeah, so he starts out really as a, a number eight or nine, a, a left-arm spinner who can whack some handy, handy run, runs down the order. And it's actually the, the, the boxing day they test. He's only opened in, in one previous test match. He's been playing for about, about four, four years at that point. 16 tests, in fact. So normally batting at, at six. And he's, he's started to do well in ODI's opening. And Sri Lanka, they just give him the chance to do the same. And he he whacks a century at, at basically a, a runner ball, which is really kind of pretty mad in, in those times. you know. And that's Sri Lanka is still very well beaten anyway. But that's the glimpse of that the ODI approach actually working in, in test cricket as well. And I suppose that Sri Lankan pitches actually generally is not a huge amount of seam and swing early on. So it's a good place to be an aggressive opening batsman. And they take that to another level in one day games though, don't they? Like it does explode. So we had had exciting one day openers before. I mean, Keith Stackpole was probably one of the earlier versions of that. Chris Shrikant was yeah. another version of that. You then have Mark Greatbatch as well. So we had had attacking opening batters before, and we'd had pinch hitters. Ian Botham had been a pinch hitter, right? The difference is the way that Sri Lanka fully committed to the attacking, especially in the power play. Yeah, so there's not just one batter who does this. They're, they're kind of all in it, and then the middle order have a, a, a different role. But yeah, I think other countries would have one player as a kind of joker and say, you can go out. doesn't really matter. The, the price of your wicket is less. But with Sri Lanka, it's, it's, they commit more and teams don't really have a clue of how to respond. Actually, if you look at the World Cup, Jars Rio does very well. There's the famous innings in the quarterfinal against England when he gets gets 80 in, in 40 balls. Robert Karabatar doesn't get a huge amount of runs. Often he gets kind of quick 15 off eight balls kind of innings, mm. but that's okay as well. And that's still... So yeah, Jars Rio is probably a higher caliber of batsman to have really done that role than any who, who'd done before. Because Ian Botham, when he was doing, you know, wasn't the same pass as Jars Rio. Yeah. He was towards the end, yeah. He was finished. He was finished. You could use, you could say Ian Botham was finished at that point. I think we all know he was finished. You can, can say five years before. Yeah. yeah. Even when Great Batch and Shrikanth, even David Boone did it a little bit for Australia. Like, even when those players did it, they showed more intent in the way that Gordon Greenwich might have done. What they didn't do was literally try and break you in the power play. There was no thinking that that was the, the, the goal within cricket to be able to break you within the power play. And I think that was a huge difference, whereas... Sri Lanka was saying, well, you know, at the end of this power play, we might be 100 runs. And now you've got to work out what you need to do for the rest of the game. Yeah, and in a way, their middle order, they have faith in their middle order to, you know, to Silva and so on, although to Silva plays some very aggressive innings as well. But they have faith in middle order that they can control the game if need be. And you almost, 
work backwards towards sort of 260 saying if we're 100 100 for three or 15 that's fine we can we've then got enough to kind of to do whatever we need need to be to get to our target which is a very different way of going back to the tradition of ODI batting is very, very defensive. It's really, you, you build and build and build and over 50 overs, you only really start to, you want to have seven wickets in hand after sort of th- 35, 38 overs. So it's a very much, you build and build and build. And of course, in a way that limits your ceiling because if you build and build and build, you get to 140 for, for two or 36 overs, then you have five or six dodgy overs, lose a few wickets. Suddenly, you're only going to get 220 anyway, despite having have all this build-up. But if you go from the start suddenly and it comes off, you can get 300. So it's, it's a different way of doing it. And of course, it also means things like your opponents have to kind of bowl their better bowlers earlier. So that creates opportunities later as well. So there's, you're kind of, you take the element of control in a way that lots of early earnings have been pretty kind of passive before, almost a, a formulaic way of building. And, and actually some of that probably stems from how ODI cricket started at 65 overs and it was almost you just move back the time when you start to accelerate without realizing actually with so many fewer overs, you can do things very differently. Mm. And so at this point in test cricket, correct me if I'm wrong, we never had a scoring rate over three runs and over. I think that's right. Other than outlier years where there weren't many test matches. Yeah. So the the last year with three runs and over before 2001 was 1921. So yeah. in the kind Which of, wouldn't have had many tests. And you have actually England being very weak after World War One and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that one had 10 tests off the top of my head because a lot of the earlier ones when I did my research don't even count because they don't even have 10 tests. And it's like, oh, look, the scoring rate, you know, that year was like 4.2. And it's like in all three tests. So it was a little bit different. And Australia specifically at that point, despite being seen as a fairly aggressive team, having already won a World Cup, they weren't actually a very fast scoring test team at that point, Australia, were they? Yeah. So go back to this test in Sri Lanka in 99, so Sri Lanka score at 3.53 and over in the match, Australia only at 2.57. So Sri Lanka is scoring at a run and over more than Australia here. And what happens, if you look at the Australia team in the, the mid to late 90s, actually there's a number of matches where they are on top, but they aren't able to convert those games into victories. So we found so for, from 97 to 99, there were four tests Australia drew in which they got first innings these of 149, 123, 110 and 28 and then set their opponents a target of 419. So basically Australia is really on top of these games, but is not very efficient at converting this position into enough wins. And, and it, yeah, over, over these four games, Australia sometimes are scoring as low as 2.2 and over. So they're very much the old school test cricket. Australia from beating the West Indies in 95, kind of which symbolizes when they become number one in the world, they score at 2.9 and over in the next four years, which is only actually fourth of test teams in this time, with Sri Lanka as, as number one. So Australia are playing good cricket, but they're not very distinct in terms of how they play. John Buchanan takes over, and his first presentation is basically about how can we climb Everest? That's the theme of the, the presentation. And as part of that, they, they do very deliberately talk about playing cricket in a more aggressive way. And of course, you have Adam Gilks that comes in. But one of the things... We might talk about Basball more later, but I would argue that what England are doing now partly comes from a position of weakness. You know, they've tried defensive batsmen. They haven't really worked. Australia's is different. Their position of strength, they already have a very good team. They're not always able to convert these dominant draws in, into victories. And so they're in a position where they can try and, and do something new. And with their quality, that should lead them to take the draw out of the equation, in which case they're going to be very, very hard to stop. Mm. The interesting thing about Australia is you focus quite a bit on Gilchrist and obviously he makes about a runner ball 80 in his first game before Shoah Bakhtar bowls an incredible Yorker to dismiss him. 
which Yo Arabakar loves to show that Yorker online, but kind of always forgets that they've been smashed everywhere before that. They go to Hobart and they're chasing 360, 369 off the top of my head. Yeah. They're five for about 110. Yeah, one, two, six for five. Yeah. And Gilchrist comes in and a really, really interesting thing happens. And this is going to play completely into the best ball generation when we talk about that, is that instantly Wazamakram starts putting boundary riders out, right? Gilchrist hasn't really done anything. And my memory is there were three boundary riders almost from his first ball. Now, it's, maybe it's not that. Maybe he hit a boundary or two early on. But this wasn't an era when we had boundary riders. There's a great old innings. It's worth looking at. It's, I think it was Sobers in the 70s when he was playing for the rest of the world 11 versus Australia, and he makes a big double century. He's just hitting boundaries all day. It's like, if you watch that innings, it takes forever for the fielders to get out, right? He's like 170 when they start putting boundary riders out. Whereas for Gilchrist, it was completely different. And it's because Gilchrist had smashed Pakistan in that previous test, but also smashed him in so many one-day games and smashed everyone else in so many one-day games by that point. Everyone knew who he was and what he could do, but it completely scrambled the way that Pakistan were thinking about how they needed to bowl to him, right? The interesting thing about Gilchrist is you talk about Australia making a conscious effort to score quicker. I went back and had a look at Gilchrist's first four hundreds in first-class cricket, and you'll like this. The second first-class hundred he ever made was against Somerset and Marcus Triscothic got him out. That's just a fun fact. We're just going to throw that in, Wig, but we don't even need to mention it anymore. But when you look at them, I think three of them are pretty close to run a ball, right? There's a run a ball 180 years in a Shield final, which is the one I remembered off the top of my head. But there were two others, I think, in England as well that were, again, were very quick. Gilchrist didn't have to be told to score quickly. He was just that kind of player naturally and, and had always been that, even if you go back and look at his pre-first class stats. That's how he was. It's the rest of the team that's more interesting because they all get quicker, don't they? Yeah, I think the best example of this is Justin Langer. So when Buchanan takes over November 99, his striker is 41. He is your gritty left-handed battler, basically. And he's 29 almost, so he kind of is what he is. Batsmen don't really tend to radically change at that point. But then the rest of his career, strike rate is 58. So that's a massive shift, a 50% increase almost in his strike rate. I think that's really good evidence, actually, that something concerted really is happening here. It's not just Gilchrist, as you said. It's other players already in the team, already established. They're starting to play differently as well. So the Langer one's really interesting. So I always had this theory that teams played Langer incorrectly, right? What Langer would do is he'd take a bunch of risks early on and slash a bunch of boundaries, and then it would still take him all day to get to his 100. So he would have a really good strike rate for the first 20, 30, maybe even 40 balls. Shane Watson did a very similar thing. Even Michael Slater did a similar thing. And then the field would settle out and they were like, well, there's only two slips in place now. So the chance of me getting an edge and being caught in the slip cordon is down. And there's not a bat pad anymore because they've had to put him into the offside or, or, you know, to mid-wicket or whatever. And so a lot of it was performative, what Australia was doing. The other thing that I find really interesting, in fact, we'll go into it. So from there, when Australia start doing that, run rates go up everywhere, right? And in the book, you talk about there's two different theories. You obviously wrote this book with Stefan and you believe that Australia inspired other teams. And I think what Stefan and I believe is that actually it was one day cricket's impact on test cricket that actually changed scoring rates. I'm going to tell you specifically how I think that um, happened. Essentially, if you look at what Australia did in their revolution from 1987 through to their World Cup victories, boundaries weren't their most important thing. Their best thing was fitness running between wickets and everything else. You look at the players in the 90 Wigmore, there's a lot of guys who couldn't actually get to the other end for quick singles. There's a lot of players who didn't worry about singles at all. They would hit a boundary every couple of overs, and that was their form of attacking cricket. 
converting ones into twos wasn't a thing. You can go back and you can see a lot of cricket from the 70s, 80s, 60s. There are a lot of people who were walking and conserving energy. That's not always the case, though. If you go back and look at that cricket from the 30s, 40s, 50s, it's a little bit different. But certainly it was becoming that. I think that a lot of the extra fitness, the fact that teams were used to stealing singles and everything, is part of the reason. I'm not saying Australia didn't inspire them because everyone was talking about Australia, so that certainly played a part. But I actually think the bigger change was probably just fitness levels and understanding that running between the wickets was really important. Yeah, so it's a combination of these two factors, I think, as you... I give a bit more weight to Australia, Stefan, and you to ODIs, but I'm not saying the ODIs are not a factor as well. But I think the fact that what was interesting, teams have access to one-day players. I think teams are more willing to promote players to test cricket based on one-day form and actually to play in a certain way. So Marcus Druscothic makes his debut in 2000, which is less than a year after Adam Gilchrist kind of comes in. I think that's important. Uh, Saywag makes his debut for injury in 2001. And those guys are allowed to play not too dissimilar to how they play in, in one-day cricket. Mm. So I think what's happening is a kind of combination. There's a great support of players who've played international cricket and shown they can play in a bit more aggressive way. And suddenly Australia are doing it and it's working really well. And we have to remember that what England and Australia do, cricket history always matters more than other countries, kind of unfortunately, because it gets more attention. And therefore, I think in a way that England and Sri Lanka were doing it first, I think it's Australia that has a bigger impact on other teams actually copying them because they're more analysed and, and written and, and reported on and so on. Well, also, I mean, Sri Lanka had won the World Cup by that stage, but they weren't a major force in Test cricket. They weren't playing as much Test cricket as anyone else. Well, I was saying that like, video footage and stuff often non-existent, which is a big contrast exactly. to Australia. And if you look at the run rates, Australia were completely, they were the number one team in terms of run rates as well. So even if they were partly inspired by Sri Lanka, which is very, very possible, a lot of it is just that they did it better. They were a better team than Sri Lanka at that point. Sri Lanka had Absolutely. five or yeah. six incredible players, whereas Australia had a, you know, a group of 15 players. So, But you're right about the history thing. There's absolutely no doubt. In fact, the history thing is, I think it's slightly misremembered as well. If you look at Gilchrist is thought to be the person who changed wicketkeeping batting when it comes to picking people who could bat. That's not what actually happens with Gilchrist at all. Andy Flower and Alex Stewart and Jeffrey Dujon were all picked because they could bat, right? They were all seen as frontline batters who could use the gloves. It didn't quite work for Dujon, but Alex Stewart and, and Andy Flower obviously did make it work. And other countries were starting to do similar things. What Gilchrist does, and this goes right back to that run rate thing is, Gilchrist is the one where they start picking attacking batters, right? And now you're almost going back to traditional cricket. So traditionally, Number seven would be a player who would be like, you know, Leary Constantine, or uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others, or you know, Alan Davidson, these sorts of players who would come in and whack it, right? That was the position. It was like, you need to be able to bat a little bit, but really what we want is when the bowlers are tied, we want someone to come in and whack a quick 40 and put them off a little bit before the tail come in. Gilchrist sort of did that, but at a higher level because he was a better batter, which meant that you know, well, England have been trying to copy that method, you know, ever since. Obviously, Brad Haddon was the replacement, Brendan McCullum, Quentin de Kock. A lot of very attacking wicket keepers exist now. Doni, Pant. Oh, yeah, Doni, Pant. I mean, Safras Ahmed is another one. You know, faster scoring players. When you look at the list now of the, I think it's the top 30 faster scoring players uh, since the year 2000, it's Tim Southey. Runda Sewag and a lot of wicket keepers, right? <laughs> There's a lot of wicket keepers at the top of that list. And I think that changed. And I think just putting that one position back in, which had sort of disappeared from cricket a little bit, I think that attacking yeah. number seven or num number eight or whichever position it was, I think putting that one position in, again, has to give the run rates a bit of a jump up. Yeah, so in the 1990s, the strike of wicket keepers is exactly the same as top six batters. 
their batting is already becoming more important for sure. In fact, the um, averages increase as much from 80 to 90 as 90 to 2000 of keepers, but they are just being picked and being played and playing as normal batters. And then suddenly that there is a hike in the strike rates of, of keepers compared to top six go up three points in the 2000s. So there is a shift in the, the type of keeper batters who come out and possibly as an obsession at times and, and kind of teams become too fixated on Australia, which is again the Australian thing. And it, it takes a while before we go back now to where I think teams want to have an aggressive keeper batsman, but they're not wedded to it in the same way. So you have, have Josh De Silva, mm. you have BJ Watling, and teams find a way to deal with that as well. But in the 2000s, it's almost like you both need to be a good batter and you need to play in a particular way. And I think that is a Gilchrist effect on keeper batters more than a guy who can bat more because it's already trending that way. You know, England in the 90s, they already basically, over the decade, they kind of moved from Jack Russell, who actually could bat a reasonable amount as well, to Stewart as, as keeper. So that's all, already happening. It, it's the, the mm. aggression that is is the shift. And I think we can attribute a lot of that just to Gilchrist himself. Yeah. And once you put that one player in, they really do lift the strike rate. And I suppose that takes us through to McCullum because he is on the back end of that. But just before we get to him... The interesting thing is that I don't have the numbers in front of me, but my memory is the top end rates as far as runs per over actually occur between 2007 and 2012. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. So there's been a, a shift back. Actually, I, th I think it might've been from 08. Yeah. So if you look at it, I was close. It's 08, 09, which are incredibly high scoring years as well in that sort of period. But also if you look at between what, 2003, for quite a few years, it's, it's almost about seven years from 2002 through to 2009, 2010. Then we have a dip in the run rate, runs for over for a little while. Then it goes back up again almost straight away. And then as the wickets start to fall massively, runs per over does come down. Although there is one hilarious year in 2020 when the run rate is one of the highest we've ever had and no one's making any runs, which is completely bizarre. But essentially in the T20 era, which is really post 2008 it was actually went a little bit slower than the, the 10 years before so t20 cricket specifically so far wigmore has not really affected runs per over and test matches that we can tell no there's no impact at all you know from the outside that you can tell which is very interesting everyone's saying it's really test batting and everything well i suppose you could argue it's made defenses less good because people don't practice it as much but really you could say with, with specialization and so on well, at least we had been until this summer, moving towards more distinct players. Just the quality of fast bowlers, especially, has been phenomenal in recent years. And the level of skill and, and fitness also, you know, don't get as many kind of fifth bowler overs being bowled now as before. And the pitches have been spicy, really. So, yeah, it's very hard to say T20 has, up until now, had any impact on run rates. Yeah, I think I, just because it's my podcast and we can't have a whole podcast without me mentioning this, the wobble ball has obviously played a very big part in all of that as well. So we come through here now to McCullum. So I did a deep dive on McCullum the batter. And one thing that you notice with him is I think he's got about the seventh or eighth highest strike rate. And this is from 1980 onwards. So there might have been some older players out there, but he's got about seventh or eighth highest strike rate in test cricket of people over 5,000 test runs. But it's a long way short of Sawag and Gilchrist. I think they're both in the 80s, and he's around 65. So he's upper echelon all time, but nowhere near the really, really you know dynamic scorers. But when you look at the innings that he has played, and you look at the fastest scoring innings of all time, over 50 overs, you know New Zealand's on that list a lot, 
and they're almost entirely down to him playing an absolutely huge inning. So I think they're on it six times when he bats. And of those six times, he has a strike rate of over 95 of the times. There's only one innings where he's not a driving factor in the strike rate. But he wasn't a Shahid Afridi or Saywag or Gilchrist level attacker. He picked and chose when he was going to attack. Yeah, I mean, his striker is 64, which is on the high side, but it's not insane. Of course, he scores a triple century in um, 13 hours. Like, he can mm. play a different way. He also says BJ Watling is his, his favourite player at one point, who is pretty much the antithesis of what we think of as Basball. So there's a bit more pragmatism there than some people think. I think the interesting thing with him is when he wanted to play in that method, sort of Tassie Devil style of batting, what you notice is that teams don't know what to do to him. It doesn't matter if it's a T20 game, a one-day game, or a test match. There is no form of bowling that makes sense when McCullum is going completely off, right? There's no way really to go. And I think that is a really, really interesting thing that's worth noting as England go forward. They're not going to be able to do this in every situation. They're not going to be able to do it all the time. In fact, if you look at these three tests... The ball got soft really early on over and over again. Unlike normal English conditions, it was very much a new ball summer. The pitches were incredibly flat. And most importantly for England's chases, did not degrade at all. There was the slightest bit of variable bounce, but they really didn't help the bowlers later on. New Zealand's selection policies were absolutely bizarre from beginning to end. And then on top of that, they made it worse by getting injuries. And also, I'm going to throw in, just not bowling Daryl Mitchell when clearly they have to bowl Daryl Mitchell. So all those things certainly played a very, very big part in this. That said, what England did is still quite, if you look at the history of Test cricket, as far as the chases and as far as the run rates go, it's absolutely notable and it sticks out. Yeah, it's insane. So England's run rate this series, 4.5. Only one team has ever done that in the three-match series, which was Australia against a very weak West Indies side in 2015. And England, yeah, scoring half and over quicker than they've ever scored before. And it's clear that they really do have a different approach here. And, and there is the sort of one day thinking. I think I think a really important strand of this is that you have those overs to kind of see you to the second you ball from sort of 65 to 80. And you might have guys bowling, you know, you'd have a Daryl Mitchell. Or Collingwood overs. Yeah, a Daryl Mitchell type bowler would bowl to a 7-2 field mm. and probably go for, for two, 2.2 and over. So they probably wouldn't get a wicket, but it's not really doing much damage to you as a bowling side. And what England have done here, they've taken that out of the equation, you know, Michael Bracewell has actually got five wickets in 47 overs, which is a good strike rate for an off-spinner. But of course, he's been hit for 300 runs. He's gone for six runs and over. And that, in turn, it just causes complete chaos. And I think there's a, a big value to this chaos against a team as sort of methodical and meticulous as this New Zealand team. You know, they have their plans and suddenly they've, they've been ripped up. And actually, I think you could argue that England's treatment of Bracewell was actually what leads to Carl Jameson over bowling in the second test and then getting injured, which then in turn probably cost New Zealand that, that test match. So against a very structured team, I think there can be a lot of value in playing with this sort of freedom. But clearly the pitches, you know, I was looking at the movement. So Seaman swing has never been less in an English summer since 2004 when was so the first was 2005 has been trapped. It's never been less Seaman swing than this summer. So you couldn't have picked better conditions to do this in. And the attack, given the, the lack of spinner and certainly the lack of trusted spinner in the first test, has also been ideal to do this in. Plus, we've had injuries to the Gronholm and Jameson. So there's been a lot of luck which have helped and there's been indoor edges past the stumps and stuff. But in a way, this doesn't invalidate the idea of McCullum being a bit more pragmatic because in many ways, this was a perfect series to, to try this new approach. It's very different 
doing it in the sort of 2018, 2019 songs, which were terrible for batting. And, you know, guys like Jason Roy and Hales, well, they were probably quite jealous of England this summer. You know, they probably wouldn't have succeeded in Test cricket regardless, but they've had a lot more chance doing it on these pitches than when they played in those spicier wickets. Yeah, any batter would feel that way, I think. And in that particular case, like, you know, Butler must have been looking at these pitches and going, this would have been handy for the way yeah. that I play. So, look, you can certainly see the difference there. I think the other interesting thing is that when McCullum took that job, I couldn't work out what his thinking was because there was no way to fix that batting lineup, right? Like Crawley and Amid and Burns and Lees and Sibley and, you know, and then a bunch of middle order guys that they've also turned through. You and I, we aren't specialists in county cricket, but we watch enough and you see these guys that are talked up and you're like, well, this guy's not going to star in test match cricket. He might average 35 you know, or 30 like Rory Burns has, but there aren't that those sorts of players out there. What McCullum has really done is he's been watching what England have done with the white ball game and be like, okay, but what there is out there is an actual strength of people who can hit the ball. So West Indies players probably still hit the ball harder at the top end than the English players do, but there's never been a group of batters from one country who hit the ball as consistently for boundaries from a length, you know, from good deliveries as England players. We're talking about all the way from the players that we all are aware of, like, you know, Butler and Bairstow and Stokes, all the way down to, you know, guys who come up and play a couple of good blast seasons and then disappear. It's just ridiculous how well English players have been trained on how to hit the white ball. And, you know, my theory on this, it's a combination of the T20 existing in England a lot longer than anywhere else did, playing really long tournaments, Pro 40 being around. And then the fact that if you're in the best 100, 150 players professionally in England, you have to be monumentally shit to be dropped. You know, Alex Lees averaged 17 one season and is still playing for England. I don't think that's probably going to happen if you're a, uh, you know, a Sheffordshire or a Ranji Trophy or, you know, a franchise opener in, in South Africa. So I think a lot of these different things come together. But I feel that that's what McCullum saw, right, was if all these guys can hit these balls like they are hitting them, can we not get them to do that in a test match and completely knock the shape out of international bowlers, which is what McCullum himself did. Yeah, but it also it's coming from a position of weakness in that England have tried what everyone yep. says they should do, proper test technique, blah, blah, and it just hasn't worked at all. So if the alternative, you're trying that again and again and again, it hasn't worked. They've got through all these openers. So that's kind of like led them to why not try this radically different thing. And obviously they kind of did half try it in 2018, which is it was obviously the sort of total cricket team, as Ben Jones called it, which was lots of all-rounders mm. who often did, did score quickly. And actually they did very well under that. That was England's best period. I think they won seven tests out of eight over 2018 and then they have this one car crash test in Barbados and they they rip that up and then go to more conventional again but even that they didn't have quite the level of of intent that England have shown this series so it's completely well empowering batsmen and I think again though it's like your defences aren't very good so I was looking at the number of balls per dismissal when defending in England and that has been crashing down as well and yet the number of balls per dismissal when attacking hasn't really gone down the same way so you've got a funny thing where Batson have probably got worse at defending and better at attacking at the same time, which means the relative risk of embracing this approach is less. And of course, you might have some car crashes with this, but you're having car crashes. You were just batting 60 overs and getting rolled for 150 anyway. So what's the worst that can happen in some ways? Yeah, there's an element of Triscothic and Vaughan, like that sort of haunted English cricket for years. It's like, oh, maybe we don't need to look at first-class form and we could just pick random guys. And it's like, well, you didn't end up with Triscothic and Vaughan 
through a good system. You ended up with them because you had tried every other warm body in England in your top order. If they had a better system, they would have noticed them earlier on or pushed them earlier on. And in some cases, they just played when they were at their peak ages as well. But when you look at this, it's really interesting. And this is the thing I want to ask you because I've been thinking about this a lot. Obviously, we know it won't work on day five. I was going to say Wacker, but Wacker doesn't exist anymore. But a day five Australian pitch that's cracked, right, probably doesn't work. We know it's not going to work on, you know, uh, some of the pitches we saw in Chennai. We know it's not going to work on some of the West Indian ones where the ball doesn't, you know, bounce above knee height. <laughs> so there are certain pitches where it just won't work anyway. But on a pitch that is true, what is red ball line and length if you can't bowl it? anymore, right? So the big skill of test match bowling is the fact that you can bowl a really good line and length over and over again. And maybe someone like Gilchrist or Saywag or, you know, Viv Richards can try and knock you off your length a little bit, right? But if you are charging down the wicket, or if you are hitting that length to unconventional areas, or you're reverse scooping it, does that length even have the same impact that it once did? Well, the question now is if we're seeing white ball skills in test cricket with the bat, are we going to see more white ball skills with the ball in terms of more slower balls, more Yorkers and so on? And I, I actually argue New Zealand probably could have tried those options a, a bit more. And that'll be one of the things. I think New Zealand's, even their field settings, they didn't even try a 7-2 offside field. You know, They didn't even try that. And they might have just been pummeled through leg side, but that would have maybe created chances of getting a leading edge and, and so on. So I think New Zealand, their whole approach is very much based on controlled cricket and therefore they're a good opposition to try this method against. I think someone like India or Australia, they would have been a bit more nimble and their plan B might not have worked, but they would have kind of kept on coming up with more, whereas I don't feel New Zealand kind of did. But in terms of, I guess, what's sustainable, let's just say if England pitches keep on being like this, which is really different to what they've been recently, but if they keep Mm. on being like this, I think what's sustainable from this? So I think the old ball approach, you're probably not quite at this level, but I think actually that really might have some legs given what Bairstow can do, what Stokes can do, what Rashi Root can do when he gets in. He's played in a very liberated way this way. I wouldn't be that concerned about that. I think they might be able to score at, at four, four and a half over against the old ball, but the new ball is what really would, would worry me still. And you'll be seeing him have two shocking lapses this series, a seven for 41 at Laws and six for 55 at Leeds. And I think to divide up Basel into, you know, new ball and old ball. The old ball looks to me like it's got a lot more legs, but it, it probably needs the new ball being shored up a little bit. I mean, you could even say if there was a better version of Sibley or Burns, they would actually be quite good to to get you to 30, 40 overs, and then you, you can attack. Mm. So that's my take on those, those sort of two strands. So I'm looking at it from a slightly different way, although I think what you said is great, but like I'm thinking about it from a, basically what the reverse sweep does as a shot. So the reverse sweep then allows you to push the field out and you have to have more fielders either on the boundary or in areas that you wouldn't generally want to have fielders. Once you start to do that, it changes it. And also it gives very easy attacking scoring shot on both sides of the wicket. No matter where you pitch the ball, length matters a little bit more with sweeping, but line doesn't matter that much. You can reverse sweep from outside your original leg stump as you can from outside off stump or on the on the stumps and then if you want to do the conventional sweep you can do the exact same thing if test cricketers go to the point of what joe root's doing which is you're gonna bowl outside off stump to me well i'm now gonna flip this over the slips until you can't go with that anymore and you know if you look at what stokes is doing so he's come and daryl mitchell did it as well this is the interesting thing daryl mitchell didn't attack but daryl mitchell literally changed the length 
by coming down the wicket every ball to the England bowlers and saying to them, you're not going to bowl the length that you want. I'm going to force it this way. If that's what test batters are going to do now, I no longer know what the best ball is to a test batter. And I go back to John T. Rhodes facing Shane Warne when he was sweeping him and reverse sweeping him. And you're watching him going, what can Shane Warne do? Shane Warne's big advantage here is spinning the ball away from the outside edge. There is no longer any outside edge or beat the inside edge. And when I watched Joe Root play that shot against Wagner, I was thinking the same thing of they finally got the 7-2 field, which we'd all been asking for every time they'd been getting smashed. Wagner then hangs it out wide. It's clearly bothering Joe Root. And then Joe Root goes, ah, okay, all that strategy doesn't matter anymore because I'm going to play a shot that you hadn't even thought about yet. That is the really interesting part of this. That should be able to work on kind of any pitch, that part of it, right? You should be able to scoop that bowler on any particular pitch. How often that it ends up where someone scoops the ball straight up in the air and they're caught by the wicketkeeper anyway, or they drag the ball back onto their stumps from eight foot outside our stump might stop it. But you see what I'm saying? Literally taking away the strengths of test bowlers. Yeah, and the other thing is by... Be able to play those shots a bit like what you said on Justin Langer earlier. But if you show that you can play those shots, then suddenly you can probably score three and a half, four and over just in singles because you've got boundary riders, mm. riders everywhere. So whether you actually, you kind of scare the opposition into taking out the slips and almost forgetting to try and get you out in, in a normal way, that will be another potential benefit of this. So I think as a fielding team, you need to be able to think on your feet. I think you probably want more one day variations. But you also just need to which I think New Zealand did at times. New Zealand did times when, you know, Michael Bracewell was bowling around the wicket to Joe Root. How are we trying to get this guy out? And I think New Zealand at some times, kind of at one point, it looked like their only option for wickets was being caught on the boundary. So you need to kind of keep the faith in that. Otherwise, yeah, you're road to nowhere, really. The name of your book was, I've forgotten. Cricketonomics, The Anatomy of Modern Cricket. Available everywhere you need it to be available. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Cheers. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Benredi is in charge of our video side. Orijati Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shabanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket.